Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, Episode 7, The Lost Decade. I'm Brandon Seal. In the previous episode, oil took over the Mexican economy. Pemex was transformed from a modest national oil company charged with supplying domestic markets to the primary engine of economic growth in Mexico and the primary source of revenues for the Mexican government. So drastically had Mexico's fortunes changed that President José López Portillo claimed that the main challenge for Mexico going forward was simply, quote, managing abundance. Following 20 years of sustained economic growth, the largest oil finds since Saudi Arabia in Cantarel, and a conviction that worldwide oil resources would only become more scarce, international financiers jumped at the opportunity and showed up in force to help Mexico, quote, manage that abundance. The temptation to overborrow, particularly for a country like Mexico, which had struggled since the revolution to even maintain a stable currency, proved too strong. The national debt quadrupled during López Portillo's sexenio, from $19 billion to $80 billion in 1982. This coincided, unfortunately, with the fact that they were receiving far less revenues for their oil in 1981, not only because of falling prices, but also because they had spooked international markets when they insisted quixotically on trying to maintain their posted price for oil throughout 1981. By the start of 1982, Mexico's interest rate on its dollar-denominated bonds was around 24%. So, when in early 1982, when U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker announced a further hike in interest rates, it set off a quiet panic in Mexico's finance ministry. The finance minister, Jesus Silva Herzog, who, coincidentally, was the son of one of the most articulate defenders of the 1938 expropriation and an eventual director of Pemex in his own right, who would ultimately quit, ironically, over a wage dispute with the oil workers' union, hurriedly arranged a $900 million emergency loan from the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, which ended up fending off Mexican default for about one week. After running through the emergency loan, Silva Herzog had little choice but to announce that Mexico would no longer be able to service its international debt. The Mexican economy collapsed. Inflation would rage from 100 to 150 percent over the next seven years, while unemployment would hover around 25 percent. Government revenues fell almost by half. Financial institutions were nationalized to keep them from imploding. Government spending was slashed, and the peso devaluated almost 500 percent. After intense negotiations amongst the Fed, international banks, and the Mexican Treasury, Mexico's debt was temporarily rolled over, but true relief wouldn't come until 1989 when the United States and the International Monetary Fund arranged a package of long-term debt relief that allowed Mexico to restructure its debt. By then, however, the damage had been done, and the Mexican economy was still smaller than it had been seven years earlier when the crisis started in 1982. Mexicans refer to the 1980s as the lost decade, a decade made all the more tragic by the astronomical growth that Mexico witnessed in the 1970s. It precipitated a period of heavy political introspection. In a time of falling tax revenues and tight scrutiny from international banks, the entire status command control structure of the Mexican economy came into question, and Pemex was not exempt from this. Following the boom of the 1970s and the very public rise and fall of Jorge Diaz Serrano as its director, by 1982, Pemex had been taken over by the politicians. The dollars were too large to ignore, and the revenues too critical to the Mexican government for the politicians not to meddle. No longer would Pemex be run by industry types like Antonio Bermudez or his disciples, such as Jesus Reyes Eroles and Antonio Dovali. Going forward, Pemex general directors would be politicians, appointed to carry out specific political mandates. So with the Mexican nation effectively operating in receivership and the politicization of Pemex's management, 
The old nationalist vision of a Pemex dedicated to supplying domestic markets necessarily took a back seat to a financial vision of Pemex as a tool for maximizing Mexico's short-term income. Debt covenants would become as important in Pemex's future five-year plans as production targets had been in the past, and the new game was finding ways to lever up Pemex with as much debt as possible. Unfortunately, this and various other factors only contributed to exacerbating Pemex's challenges with corruption. Developing Pemex's newfound resources required using more third-party services, which by itself increased the opportunities for corruption. But second, the sheer size of the dollars involved now and the absence of a profit motive within Pemex worked to almost logically ensure that corruption would prevail. The proliferation of corruption within Pemex during these years, of course, served only to confirm some of the worst perceptions of the oil industry and the apparent need for more government oversight of it, which tended, unfortunately, to only create more opportunities for corruption. And Pemex's top line just kept getting worse. By 1986, world oil prices had reached historical lows on a real basis and stubbornly refused to come back, even in the face of coordinated production cuts from OPEC, Mexico, and the Soviet Union. A barrel of heavy Mayan crude, which Mexico could have sold for $16.50 a barrel in 1980, fetched only $4.60 a barrel in 1986. Operationally, the impact was devastating. Investment in infrastructure stopped. Today, more than 30 years later, the same six refineries that were in operation in 1979 are still the only domestic source for refined products in Mexico. Major pipeline projects would not be undertaken again until 2013. Exploration died for a generation. In 1986, Pemex drilled only 246 wells in the entire country, down from about 750 wells per year in the 60s, and this number would fall to about 100 wells a year for the 10 years following 1986. But the resource was so substantial that production and reserves actually climbed slowly but steadily throughout the late 80s and 90s, from 2.5 million barrels a day to 3 million barrels a day by 2000, just that it was only generating a quarter of the revenue that it was before. Pemex's financial woes were made all the more tragic by the fact that they were given no incentive to cut costs. Profits were immediately taxed away by a revenue-strapped government. Responding to this perverse incentive, administrative costs within Pemex grew to eat up the savings realized in the early 1990s from cuts to operating expenditures, as managers began empire-building campaigns within their departments. When profits don't matter and politicians are running the show, the game becomes a purely political one. And so Pemex's management like the oil workers' union, began to parallel that of the Mexican political system at large, focused on relationships and patronage networks, rather than efficiencies or profits. But as in the 1940s, when the Mexican government first asserted its control over Pemex against the oil workers' union, so did the government's increasing control of Pemex in the 1980s result in confrontations with the union. By 1984, union membership had swelled to 175,425 members, from just 71,878 members in 1970. But with the government taking a much closer interest in Pemex again, the government began to directly attack some of the union's old prerogatives. In 1984, the Mexican Congress passed a law that required all Pemex contracts be openly and publicly tendered and forbade their being re-subcontracted. These subcontracts, recall, were not only a source of jobs for the union's many often underemployed temporary and supernumerary members, but also the union had historically been able to make first offers at these subcontracts, which they would then re-subcontract to third parties who would actually do the work and allow the union to simply pocket the profit. These legislative changes reflected larger changes in the Mexican economy that triggered strong responses from both sides of the political spectrum, 
and probably represented the beginning of the end of the alliance between the right-wing Mexican corporate interests and the left-wing Mexican labor movement in the PRI party, all of which came to a head in the 1988 presidential election. The election pitted the son of Lázaro Cárdenas, named Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, on a hard left-wing ticket, promising a return to the revolution's statist ideals against the Harvard-trained Carlos Salinas on the official PRI ticket, promising liberalization and modernization of the Mexican economy. Amidst large irregularities, including a convenient computer crash while tallying the votes, Salinas and the PRI were declared the winners, and one of Salinas's first targets was the oil workers' union. Breaking with 50 years of loyalty to the PRI party, the oil workers' union had been only lukewarm in support of Salinas's candidacy, and made it known that they would be quite happy with another Cardenas presidency. Within 40 days of taking office, Salinas had taken on and taken down the union chief Joaquin Hernández Galicia, also known as La Quina, who had ruled over the oil workers' union for almost 30 years. Salinas's act was noteworthy enough that it was given its own name by the press, the Quinazo. La Quina was almost certainly corrupt, but he was also very popular in the union and quite politically powerful given the size and importance of his constituency. And so here I can't help but note the parallels between Salinas's attack on La Quina and his predecessor, Miguel de la Madrid's prosecution of Jorge Diaz Serrano, though the victims in either case represented radically different ends of the political spectrum. Both purges carried heavy political undertones and eliminated a potential political rival to the president. Both Diaz Serrano and La Quina were ultimately convicted of lesser ancillary charges, in La Quina's case, for illegal gun charges, rather than the murder and racketeering he was generally accused of. Both acts were, it seems, largely acts of political theater, and both men, though convicted and imprisoned for a brief period of time, were also eventually released, or in Laquina's case, pardoned in 1997. With Laquina out of the way and the Union ranks terrorized, Salinas's administration would lay off, retire, or otherwise let go almost 100,000 employees, downsizing Union roles from 210,000 in 1989 to 107,000 by 1994. Symbolically as well, the, quote, Revolutionary Mexican Oil Workers Union dropped the word revolutionary from their official name, symbolic perhaps of their momentary docility. But to accomplish these things, Salinas had needed to elevate a compliant insider to the role of Union Secretary General, in this case a man from Laquina's staff and another Tampiqueño from Tampico, Carlos Romero de Champs. When we return to Romero de Champs in a subsequent episode, he will have proven to be an even savvier political operator than Laquina ever was, and he has reigned over the oil workers' union for longer than Laquina ever did. On the business side, the 1980s saw Pemex take its first tentative steps into the international oil business by purchasing 34% of Spanish refiner Petronor and 10% of Spanish oil company Repsol. These were potentially well-timed purchases, and fairly logical as well for a large exporter of crude to look for ways to move downstream in their end markets, much like Pedevesa's purchase of Sitco, which occurred around the same time. Foreign investments also represented a unique opportunity for Pemex to deploy capital into projects that were not burdened by their own heavy labor costs. Salinas picked up on this strategy and expanded upon it. In 1989, Mexpetrol was formed, the vehicle through which Pemex planned to continue investing in foreign ventures. Mexpetrol, however, would only ever undertake two projects, both in Argentina, the first a pipeline project with Tequint, and the second an exploration project with YPF and Repsol. Mexpetrol would be wound down in 1997, but remember the names Tequint and Repsol, because they will be among the first companies into Mexico when it began to experiment with contracts for foreign operators in 2003. In 1989, 
Pemex also created PMI, a foreign subsidiary of Pemex, in theory, to market Pemex's exports in the world market. In more recent years, PMI has proven most valuable to Pemex as a sort of new ventures group, able to undertake projects that the Pemex mothership couldn't get through Congress, because, whereas Pemex's budget is set by a highly political Mexican Congress, Pemex's directors retain direct control over PMI's budget and priorities. This means that PMI has been able to get into businesses like barging and buying other refined products for import to Mexico, and even acquiring part of a Spanish shipyard. What PMI also came to represent, however, was an indirect embrace of the mandates of capital efficiency. Antonio Bermudez's Pemex would have insisted on vertically integrating, building out the barges and the shipyards themselves, and entering into the petrochemical business at any cost. The new neoliberal Pemex was forcing itself to focus on its core highest return activities, while outsourcing its other needs from world markets. In the midst of these positive moves, by 1992, Pemex's challenges with corruption and inefficiency were too large to ignore. A series of tragic pipeline explosions on April 22, 1992, in Guadalajara, killed 252 people and exposed a lack of accountability within Pemex and the Mexican government generally. In retrospect, it appears that Guadalajara's sanitation department probably deserves most of the guilt for laying sewage and water lines right up against Pemex's natural gas pipelines. But the question remains why Pemex allowed this to happen and why they didn't realize sooner that the corrosion was occurring. Four Pemex employees were initially indicted and charged with criminal negligence, but were eventually wholly absolved of liability once public attention to the matter had faded. Regardless of the actual culprit, the Salinas administration used the Guadalajara explosion as the catalyst for internal structural reform within Pemex. In 1992, Pemex was reorganized into the form it would retain until 2015, comprised of four subsidiaries, refining, midstream, petrochemicals, and exploration. By separating out the different components of the value chain along the lines of other international oil companies, the administration hoped to create more transparency into the actual economics of Pemex by segment. But the fundamental economic constraints of Pemex were left in place. As such, the restructuring served only to confirm what most observers already guessed. 1. Pemex's E&P division was fantastically profitable. 2. Pemex's refining division operated at equally fantastic losses. And 3 that if Pemex was unprofitable, it was only so because of its obscene tax burden. As an example, for the period between 2007 and 2011, Pemex's E&P division would boast almost 4 billion Mexican pesos of profits before taxes. Pemex as a whole would pay almost 4 billion Mexican pesos in taxes, leaving just shy of 100 million pesos of retained earnings for the largest company in Latin America to reinvest in its own growth. Still, on balance, Salinas's reforms were probably positive for Pemex. They allowed Pemex to cut costs and survive the continuing low-price environment of the 1990s. The attempts at expanding into other international markets were the right thing to do, and even if Mexpetrol did not ultimately succeed, PMI probably did, if only in the sense that it created a way for Pemex to maintain more operational control of its finances. Salinas's government would be marked by an embrace of neoliberal reforms and privatization throughout the economy. By the end of Salinas' administration in 1994, the number of state-owned firms in Mexico had decreased from 600 to about 250. In some ways, it's not terribly unlike the economic experiments of Porfirio Diaz's own ministers, the so-called, quote, Cientificos, who, like Salinas' administration, were largely foreign-educated, finance-minded experts dedicated to modernizing Mexico's economic systems by adopting neoliberal structures. But like Porfirio's administration... Salinas' presidency would be best remembered for the corruption and economic devastation it left in its wake.
Salinas' privatization efforts seem determined to prove the maxim that behind every great fortune lies a great crime. I won't mention the names of the beneficiaries of the privatization of the Mexican steel, telephone, railroad, bank, and airline companies, but outrage over Salinas' cronyism would help delay any attempts to modernize Pemex for another 20 years. Because, as we'll explore in the next episode, after the peso devaluation of 1994 that capped off Salinas' presidency, anything that reeked of privatization or deregulation, particularly as it related to Pemex, was dead on arrival. Thank you for listening. A special note, we are just a few listeners shy of the 1,000 listener mark. I'd really appreciate anything you can do to push this podcast out to your friends or your professional network. It's fairly remarkable that we have this many people listening so far. So thank you to all of you for your support. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or download old episodes at www.brandonseal.com. For this episode, I'd like to point people to the Colegio de Mexico's site on the history of oil in Mexico at petroleo.com. Colmex.mx. That's petroleo.colmex.mx. To be honest, this is really the secret sauce behind everything I've put together for this podcast. It's the best source for articles about obscure features of the Mexican oil field, especially through the 1970s and 80s. My favorite is Adrian Lajou's History of Natural Gas in Mexico from 1976 to 1981 because Lejeune would himself become Director General of Pemex from 1994 to 1999, after he wrote this article. Lejeune is a thoughtful, brilliant man, and it's fun to track his intellectual development over the years through his writings about the Mexican oil field, which are prolific. But even as he became a rather vocal proponent of the Mexican energy reform, it's still interesting for me to note what a different intellectual tradition he comes from when he thinks about energy issues. Read for yourself and see what you think. Hasta la próxima.